Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Acts. In Acts chapter 1, if you want to follow along in the Chair Bible, you can find this on page 909. 909. And this morning we are considering together Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Before we read God's holy word, let's seek our Father again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come and we plead with you that you would enlighten our eyes with your truth. We pray that you would take this truth and sanctify us by it. We pray that you would lead us deeper into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in what we see in our Savior and His triumphant gospel that goes out unto the end of the earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Again, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they, that is the apostles, had come together, they asked Him, Jesus, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, this is God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, in volume one, of Luke's work. While we were shown uh, the doctrines and deeds of our Savior, virtually the whole time, our champion, the Lord Jesus, was in a state of humiliation. He was king. He was powerful. He manifested His authority over nature, demons, sickness, and death. But during this time, His glory was veiled. That is, people didn't see Him as He was revealed to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, where He was majestic in dazzling brightness, evidencing the glory that He had before the world began. Rather, Jesus, clothed in human vesture, looked like everybody else. Further, the Savior and King, Lord Jesus, He was subject to human weakness, fatigue, hunger, thirst, and more than that, to suffering. Indeed, for this very reason, Jesus took flesh to suffer for us, to die the cursed death of the cross that we warrant, and to be laid in the grave under the power of death for a time. But then came the third day. And on the third day, He was raised from the dead. He found His own prayers answered, crying out to His Father, and it proved that the Father accepted His sacrifice totally satisfied of the offering of Jesus and the exaltation 
of the Son of God began. Now, brethren, the exaltation of Jesus is not completed by the resurrection because our Redeemer must go to the throne of God and from there, as the victorious and heavenly accepted second Adam, sit down and manifest His complete authority by ruling, specifically by receiving and then giving the Holy Spirit. What a change this is. As Jesus moves from suffering humiliation at the scoff of religious leaders to now soaking in the praises of heaven, exalted to the right hand of God. John Flavel, one of the Puritans, points out the striking change in these words. Here, in humiliation on earth, He sweated, but exalted in heaven, He sits. Here He groaned, but there He triumphs. Here He lay upon the ground, there He sits on the throne of glory. And how did He get to that throne? Well, after this life of obedience, accepted and then raised, we confess that He ascended into heaven to secure heaven for us. And that scene of ascension is before us this morning. And we're going to think about three things as we make our way through our text. First, I want you to see with me timing. Timing in verses 6-8. to eight. <clears throat> Now, the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 15 have recorded for us ten different appearances during the 40 days Jesus was with the disciples, teaching them the kingdom of God. He was with them sometimes, apart from them other times. But verse 6 now brings us to the last appearance and the end of those 40 days. Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives, verse 12 will tell us. And Jesus meets with His apostles for the last time on earth. But as Jesus spends His final moments with them before departing, the apostles ask a strange question. Look at it in verse 6. They asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, that question is loaded with misunderstanding. In fact, John Calvin put it this way, there are as many errors in this question as words. You see, while they're trying to discern the timing of divine plans, they misunderstand the dimensions of God's kingdom, the power of God's kingdom, and the timing in which that kingdom will come in fullness. The apostles, you see, are still holding on to a cultural perception that the kingdom of God is essentially Jewish. Their concept of Israel at this moment is limited to ethnic Jews. Further, it seems, they're still clinging to some type of political deliverance idea. Jesus had taught them the spiritual nature of the kingdom, that one only enters it upon repentance and faith after a new birth. It's not a matter of assenting to certain things like taking a pledge of citizenship. But they still don't perceive the truth. Jesus had said, My kingdom is not of this world. But these men have an expectation of political rescue from Roman dominion. Now it's remarkable, isn't it? At this late stage, that the apostles still seem ignorant of Jesus' purposes for the world and their role in those purposes. Yet I submit to you, we should find this strangely encouraging. Encouraging how? Well, how long have you been a Christian and find that you fail to understand some pretty basic things? 
And yet, when this silly and really ignorant question is asked, Jesus doesn't write them off. Okay, forget it. I am done with you guys. You're just hopeless. No, Jesus will take these bumbling men and He'll use them, He'll equip them to be His witnesses. Do you see that Jesus is patient with sinners? And brethren, that is encouraging. Maybe there's also a lesson for us here, particularly for teachers in the church and for parents. Don't be surprised, despite your vigorous labors to teach the truth, when it turns out that people in the church or your children still don't get it. We are all slow to believe. We're slow to learn. And we require patient instruction. Let us learn from the Lord Jesus here to be willing to teach the same things again and again and again. Well, as this question is asked of Jesus, He doesn't make a point-by-point response to what they asked Him, but He does address the overall intent. And He begins with a rebuke. Verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. He's saying, the decree of God, sovereignly established, which is unfolding in history, is not something into which we can peer in all of our curiosity. The saving plans of God come to fruition on God's timetable and not ours. In fact, Jesus had said on this same mountain just over a month ago that no one knows when the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. Not the angels, not even the Son, which is a striking statement of His humanity. Only the Father knows the day when heaven and earth will pass away and the Son of Man will come in glory. So Jesus is telling the apostles, it's not your business to speculate about things that the Father has not revealed. Brethren, this is really a submission to God issue that all of us need to face. Many of us have memorized Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. To quote Calvin again, where God has made an end of teaching, we must make an end of learning. Do you hear that? Where God has made an end of teaching, we must make an end of learning. It is a sin to pry into God's decree and providences because it always displays a spirit of arrogance as though God should act according to my expectation. It is a sin to ask curious or unprofitable questions that fail to submit to what God has actually revealed. There's a famous story about John Flavel telling a guy who kept pestering him about heaven, why don't you believe in Christ and go and find out? We need to pay attention, dear friends, to what is actually written. And that's what Jesus, I think, is stressing. His rebuke then turns into marching orders. And those orders start really with an issue of power. The apostles are presently focused on some type of political or national power, but Jesus shifts the conversation to spiritual power that will advance His kingdom. And you see it in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When in the history of mankind has political power or military power ever brought a change at the level of the heart? 
When does that happen? Never. And it won't ever happen. It's incapable of doing that. The power that's needed is power that can truly deliver people, that can reach into man's heart and smash the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. It's a power that has to be strong enough to wake the dead and make people new creatures in Christ with new desires, new allegiances, new patterns, new loves, and chiefly a new focus. Eyes to see King Jesus. Well, thus once again, the timing question related to some type of physical and national deliverance, it's all wrong, Jesus is saying. But there's at least one more thing that's strikingly wrong here. And it's the scope of Jesus' kingdom. The apostles are focused, like most of the Jews in their day, on Israel. But the Lord had said through His prophet Isaiah, speaking of the servant of the Lord, who is Jesus, Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too small a thing, or too light a thing, that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the nations that My salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now you should really hear that last phrase, salvation reaching to the end of the earth, because that is exactly what Jesus is quoting in verse 8. The witness of the apostles that will begin at Jerusalem, the location of mostly Jews, it will expand into Judea and Samaria unto the end of the earth. Same phrase. In other words, the apostles' expectations are not according to Scripture. They haven't understood the worldwide reaching impact of the kingdom of God, the one that the Father gives the Son of Man in a kingdom where all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. Daniel chapter 7. And while, again, it's a little shocking to see that the apostles are still getting something so wrong, it is a reminder to us that all of our expectations must be established on the basis of God's Word. Dear friends in Christ, the Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. Many Christians get themselves tied up in knots, in difficult doctrinal questions, in ethical conundrums, even in wisdom perplexities for one reason alone. They don't take in the whole counsel of God. We need a thorough education in the enlightening power of the Spirit to show us all that God has spoken. We need to grasp the whole Bible. And the Bible needs to reshape your beliefs. My beliefs. The Bible needs to reshape our cultural expectations. But that will never happen if we are not careful to read, mark, and inwardly digest Scripture. Are we careful to do that? Yes, we go to a church where the Bible is preached, sung, read, prayed, and seen through the sacrament. But are we actually taking it in? Are we shaped by the Word of God? Are His testimonies our counselors? Do we take pains to ensure that I don't go beyond what is written? Rather, do we hide God's Word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him? All of your timing questions can be dealt with if you would just read Scripture. Pay attention to the Word. 
But then second, we see with me calling. Calling. Now, I've already made a few comments about verse 8, but I want to probe deeper here. The apostles are distracted with speculation, but Jesus gives the cure. The way to put off unwarranted intellectual curiosity into God's plan, specifically God's plan about the end of all things. And don't we see this continuing in our day with so many still speculating about the timing of the end? The cure to that is to get busy doing what God says to do. So Jesus gives these men a task, a calling, which has to shape their lives. Now, verse 8 again, but now looking at the second half. He tells them, power will come upon you, but what will be the effect of the power? And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You guys are focused on the tiny region of Israel, but the kingdom of God expands to the whole world. Now, what God is doing is acting according to His promise made to Abraham a long time ago. In your seed, Abraham, will all the families of the earth be blessed. This promise is bigger than anything the apostles are presently considering. But while, of course, King Jesus could, if He chose to do, bring all of His people in submission to Him instantly, if that were the plan of God, the Lord Jesus will advance His kingdom through these apostles through men who are but jars of clay. You see, the power of God will be shown when weak men witness for Christ and sinners are somehow still saved through the frailty of preaching. These weak men are possessing something incredible. They have a treasure in the jar of clay. They have the equipping power of the risen Christ through the Spirit that they might herald forth the news, the good news of Jesus' victory. And when Jesus takes the throne, He, having received the fullness of the Spirit in His exaltation, will give His Spirit to these men, directed by the very Spirit of Christ, of whom Jesus said in John 15 that He, the Helper, that's the Spirit, will bear witness about Me, or John 16, the Spirit of truth will glorify Me. So when the Spirit comes with power, sovereignly given by Jesus, what will the apostles do? You will be My witnesses. That's the job description of the Holy Spirit. To bear witness of the Son. And the Spirit will enable you to do that very thing. To bear witness. Now, from a theological perspective, this shows us the unity of the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit in the purposes of redemption. The Spirit's role is to bear witness about the Lord Jesus. And Jesus gives the Spirit so the apostles would bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit is, as Jesus would say, would say the Spirit is another helper. Jesus is a teacher and the Spirit will keep teaching. So while the Spirit is distinct from the Lord Jesus, he helps in the same way. To have the Spirit is to have Christ. And with the Spirit of the risen Christ, these men will engage in this great spiritual task to be the witnesses for Christ. Now, in what sense do we understand the phrase, you will be my witnesses? Is this indicating possession? Witnesses that belong to me. 
That's certainly true. Or is it indicating the nature of the calling? You will bear witness of me, about me, who I am, the significance of my work. I think it's the latter. And it corresponds to what Jesus had told them in Luke 24, where Jesus had said, my suffering and resurrection, repentance and forgiveness of sins needs to be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're to take the person and work of Christ and you're to make it known. That's the sense. I'm the subject of the witnessing. You know, it's interesting. The whole of Luke's Gospel, particularly the center section, was moving towards Jerusalem. Everything was about getting to Jerusalem. Jesus, Luke 9.51, set His face to go to Jerusalem. And then He would suffer and die bearing our curse in Jerusalem. But upon the resurrection and the about-to-happen ascension, the book of Acts will move from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. It moves from that spot out as the apostles go forward witnessing of Jesus because they are the eyewitnesses of His resurrection and His ministry. Now, of course, there were others who saw Jesus rise from the dead. Remember in the Corinthian epistle, Paul mentions 500 people who had seen Jesus alive. But these particular men, 11 for the moment, are chosen as His sent ones. To use Paul's metaphor in Ephesians 2, verse 20, they have a foundational role. Their calling is an unrepeatable calling. We all continue to bear witness to Jesus today, and we do it equipped by the Spirit. But we are not eyewitnesses commissioned by the risen Christ. We rather point others to the apostolic foundation. It's the truth that we confess in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and, you remember the next word? Apostolic church. We direct people, just like Luke is doing in this book, to receive the ministry of the apostles and then to look to the Christ that the apostles proclaim. Indeed, their witness-bearing, though accompanied by attesting signs, is all about proclamation. How is it the Lord Jesus is going to build His church? How is it the kingdom is going to expand? It is chiefly through the proclamation of the Word of God. This book, as I've already mentioned to you last week, is about preaching God's Word. And as Paul will put it, God is saving sinners through the foolishness of what is preached. And there is no other path of access to Jesus Christ except through the witness of these apostles with the message that they carry. You have to hear the apostolic gospel or you will not be coming to Jesus. To apply that to today's context is to recognize a simple fact. Preaching is not Christian preaching unless it rests on the foundation that these apostles proclaim. Christ risen from the dead. As I told you last week, brothers and sisters, the focus of this book is Jesus. Jesus the risen Lord. Jesus the conqueror of death. Jesus the one who pardoned sin. Jesus the exalted King. Jesus is all the focus. You must hear the message about Jesus and you must bow to Him in repentance and faith. And again, are we doing that? We probably are here saying, well, of course not. That's why I'm here. 
But do we have a posture in our soul of repentance and faith unto the Lord Jesus? Are we submissive to Him as King? And as the apostles will carry this message, they do it into three spheres, and it really provides an outline for the book of Acts. They begin at Jerusalem, and Acts 1-7 to is in Jerusalem. Then the movement will go to Judea and Samaria, and that's Acts 8-12. to And then finally the apostles, mostly through Paul, will take the gospel to the Gentile regions all the way to Rome, chapters 13-28. to Rome will be where Acts ends as the center of the Gentile empire, the end of the earth. Now, we recognize that the gospel post the book of Acts will continue expanding into the Gentile regions. But the calling here, which Acts is spelling out, is that the gospel, once and for all time, with a redemptive historical movement, has gone from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome, from one nation to the whole empire of a multitude of nations. It's not that Jews are forgotten as the gospel goes forward, just as we saw Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. But we have now reached the messianic age, the age of the Spirit, where worldwide Gentile-reaching salvation has come. Because in Jesus Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is broken down. And this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. Now, this was in other prophets, but Isaiah really focuses on this in Isaiah 40-66. to In fact, the coming of the Spirit, the calling to be witnesses, and the move to the end of the earth are all phrases Isaiah used. He used each of them about the servant of the Lord, Jesus. He was Spirit-filled, He would bear witness, and He would carry salvation to the end of the earth. But how is He going to do it? He will do it by filling His apostles with His Spirit so that they bear witness, and then the apostles here go to the ends of the earth. Here's what you need to see. That's a lot of theology. You need to remember one thing. The apostles are taking up Jesus' mission. Jesus is called to do a certain thing, and He is carrying it out by means of His apostles. That's a staggering thing in and of itself. Wouldn't you think, let's just leave it to Jesus to do, because we're going to mess it up. Well, we will. But He is working through the weakness of man to bring even more glory to His name. The apostles are distinctively tied to the foundational work of Christ, and they usher us into a new epoch, a new time where Gentiles are being saved in mass from the power of sin. Now, I don't know if you noticed this morning, but we're all a bunch of Gentiles. And beloved, we should be thankful as we sit and read this verse. Did God have to save people in addition to the tribes of Israel which He chose? No. Did He have to save anyone? No. But He chose to do it. And He chose to bring glory to His name by having the Savior ransom those of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And hallelujah be to God of that truth because the Gospel has reached to us this morning. And as the Gospel has come to us, while we're not foundational eyewitness bearers of Jesus, we still bear witness. And we testify of this glorious news that the Word of God has spread and sinners are being saved until the day when all the elect of the four corners of the world are brought home. 
Now, how can we engage in that kind of task? Taking the gospel to the end of the earth. Well, the apostles who laid the foundation were told they wouldn't do it alone. You remember how Matthew's gospel closes? I will be with you even, how long? To the end of the age. The master of the church hasn't left the church. He is with us that His name would be advanced. That's the call. Timing, calling. See thirdly with me now, departing. Over these last 40 days, though Jesus is not continually present with them, He has been with the apostles, convincing them that He is in fact raised from the dead. But with the 40 days coming to an end, He will transition to what will be a lengthy departure. Now, as Jesus transitions, there are numerous truths to grasp as Jesus ascends. Look at verse 9. And when He had said these things, immediately after that commissioning of the apostles, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. Note this language happens as they were looking on. That tells us the apostles are not just witnesses of the resurrection. They're also witnesses of the ascension. Yes, this is a supernatural moment, but it's an historical fact. Christ's ascension isn't a myth. It's not a hallucination. These men saw its physical features as they watched Jesus lift it up and a cloud envelops Him. Now, the way this happens communicates some very significant theological truths. The fact that Jesus was lifted up indicates to us some type of exaltation. The Son of God, bodily raised, is transitioning to heaven. Now, of course, many people conceive of heaven as a spiritual place, and it is. But we often don't think of it as a physical place. But look at this right here. The enfleshed, glorified Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a real body is entering heaven. What does that mean? Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a physical place. Somewhere in this created universe, there is a place called heaven. And King Jesus sits there in heaven. That's incredible. This is a realm that God created. And it's a realm where now Christ enters. Now, of course, the Son of God had been in heaven before. He was there when it was made. He was the agent through whom it was made. He, he dwelt in heaven. He was worshipped by the angels because He had glory as the eternal Word. But now, for the first time as the God-man, as our mediator, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, is entering heaven to stay. He has been exalted in view of His triumph. He's being received back into the presence of the Father, surrounded by angels, and no doubt heaven is rejoicing at the work of the champion because the work Christ has done has been the necessary work to reconcile all that is broken in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, dear friends, Christ goes to claim what Adam lost. We sang Psalm 8 to start, but Psalm 8 also teaches that Adam, the first man, was crowned with glory and honor, and all things were placed under his feet. But what happened? Well, he fell, and we fell in him, and we lost this exalted position. But now Jesus, the second Adam, 
is exalted. And to quote Psalm 8, which happens in 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, all things are under His feet. And He rules over all things for the sake of the church. He comes to hear the word, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that means, dear friends, as I've said before, right now, the dust of the earth is on the throne of glory. Our representative has gone to heaven. And what does that mean for us? It means that He's blazed the trail. It means we know we're going to go there too because we're attached to Jesus by faith. He's paved the way for us to go. But then another thing we have to understand is Jesus is exalted. Ephesians chapter 1. He is now raised and seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are classes of angels. And above every name that can be named, not only in this age, but one to come. Jesus has the chief place. Jesus is the Son of God with power. Jesus has dominion. That is a glorious truth because it means no threat can overcome His purpose. It means death can never prevail. It means we can say in the face of the darkest moments of life, even death is gain because I go to my Lord. And all of that truth is symbolized by the cloud here. You remember in the Old Testament, the glory cloud appeared on numerous occasions indicating the presence of God. But the glory departed the temple in Ezekiel 11 and it never came back. But Daniel spoke of a day when the Son of Man would appear with the clouds of heaven alongside the Ancient of Days. And then in the ministry of Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud envelops. And the Father addresses Peter, James, and John saying, This is My Son, My Chosen. Listen to Him. Well, here Jesus is taken by a cloud. And the scene tells us He is in the glorious divine presence of God the Father. But further it says, He Himself reigns. While Luke and his ascension account at the end of the Gospel focus on Jesus as priest, He blessed them as He rose. And the author of Hebrews will stress this. What is a work that Jesus does even right now as He's seated on the throne? He has the power of an indestructible life and He ever lives to intercede for His people the effectual prayers of King Jesus will never cease to ensure that we are safe. But here in Acts 1, the emphasis is not on priestly work, but kingly work. He is the Son of Man who reigns alongside the Father, to whom the Father has given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. As the apostles go forward in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit from the risen Christ, they go forward in the might of King Jesus. Yes, they're going to be opposed, and Jesus has been very clear about that. But while foes will come against them, even to the point of shedding the blood of almost all of them, this kingdom cannot be overthrown because Christ has worldwide dominion. Brethren, Jesus had promised the apostles the Spirit in the upper room. He said it was better that He depart and send the Spirit. It didn't seem like it was better to the eye of faith at the moment, but it is better because in order for the Spirit to come, Jesus must go. 
So He will ascend. He will send His Spirit. The King of glory will be exalted in the heavenly realm and He will disperse His men to proclaim the Gospel in kingdom power to the salvation of souls. And then while the eleven watched this, verse 10, while they're gazing up into heaven as He went, another eyewitness marker, behold, two men. Note the number. Why two? Every matter must be confirmed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. They stood by them in white robes. The same language was used of the angels at the tomb testifying to the women. But now they have a different message. Verse 11, they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The question assumes two things. You should no longer expect to see Jesus in the flesh. And second, you need need to stop standing looking up into the sky. You need to get busy doing the work. Now we know the apostles can't go do that work until the Spirit comes, but here's the point. Inactivity is not an option. You can't be motionless. You have to move to the ends of the earth. And then comes another declaration. The angels say, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. What does that mean? It means just as you saw Jesus physically leave, He will physically return. He will be seen. This Jesus, not another Jesus, this Jesus, the very one you guys saw, held, touched, were near, the one who lived, died, rose, and ascended, your brother, your Savior, your friend, He will come back. And He will bring the salvation to His people in all of its fullness. The return of Jesus Christ is not a matter of speculation. It is a promised biblical declaration. It's just as historical as the resurrection and the ascension, which these guys are seeing. Jesus will historically return. But while you're waiting on it, guys, don't wait in idleness. Don't go off into some hole somewhere and just do nothing and wait for Jesus to come. And Christians have done that multiple times throughout the centuries. No, the message is get busy testifying of His name. Well, brethren, that's what we have to do as well. Again, we're not doing it in the same way as the apostles, but we're to be working while we wait for Christ's return. Yes, we don't have their calling, But we have the larger calling to testify of the Lord Jesus. And we do it while eagerly awaiting a Savior to return from there. To take this body of our humiliation and raise it up in conformity to the body of His glory. Well, brethren, is that how we're living? Are we witnessing and watching? Are we laboring and looking for the appearance of our blessed hope? the great glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't demonstrate that we really believe Christ is King if we sit and do nothing. If we put it this way, if we're just a bunch of pucitors, but we don't actually carry this mind-boggling news that King Jesus saves and He's coming back. Well, may we heed the significance of this message. May we live every day with an eye to the return of Christ and laboring for Him here until He comes back. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come and we honor You that You have determined to give Your Son a kingdom. 
And that kingdom will never be overcome. We bless You that Christ will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, would You empower us to proclaim the apostolic message and we pray that You would use that Word to save sinners, to sanctify us. Lord, help us to be a Word-gripped people and particularly with the Word that Christ reigns as the conqueror of sin and death. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.